What's up, Lions of Liberty fans? You can now support this show on Patreon and get exclusive access to bonus audio and video content, including Conspiracy Corner, Degenerate Gamblers, bonus segments with guests, and so much more. Head on over to patreon.com slash Lions of Liberty. Welcome to Felony Friday, a presentation of the Lions of Liberty podcast. Here is your host, John Odermatt. Felons, friends, and freedom lovers, welcome back to another edition of Felony Friday. Felony Friday, of course, is a weekly show here on the Lions of Liberty podcast that focuses each and every single Friday on exposing injustice in this nation's broken criminal justice system. Now, Felony Friday is only one of a handful of shows that we have here on Lions of Liberty. We kick off every week with a show hosted by Mark Clare. It's our flagship program, our longest-running program, where Mark interviews leaders in the libertarian uh, movement, libertarian philosophy, uh, who also hosts from time to time roundtable discussions. On Wednesday, we have Electric Liberty Land, hosted by Brian McWilliams. That is your Weekly shot of culture, comedy, and liberty. And sandwiched right between those two days, every Tuesday, we have our newest show, Candidates of Liberty, where we interview libertarian candidates across the United States, helping them to get the message of liberty out and to talk about their campaigns and why they are running for public office. So I have a great guest today. Really excited for you guys to hear from my guest. She's someone that I've wanted to have on Felony Friday since the time I started the show, really. I heard about her way back when she was a guest on one of my favorite podcasts many years ago called Entrepreneur on Fire with John Lee Dumas. And I'll introduce my guest in just a moment. But before I do that, I want to let you guys know where the show notes page, where you can find that. This is the 140th episode of Felony Friday. That means the show notes page is at lionsofliberty.com slash FF140. Let's get going with this interview. My guest today on Felony Friday is Catherine Hoke. She is the founder of two groundbreaking nonprofits, first one being prison, the Prison Entrepreneurship Program, uh, also known as PEP, and Defy Ventures. Uh, both PEP and Defy have equipped people with criminal histories and helped them to start legal businesses and careers and to be able to add value uh, to society. And on top of that, they've produced throughout both these programs less than a 7% recidivism rate. Uh, Kat is also the author of a book by the name of A Second Chance for You, for Me, and for the Rest of Us. Uh, it's a book about new starts, forgiveness, shame, and the power of possibility. Kat, welcome to Felony Friday. Thank you so much for having me, John. Well, thank you so much for coming on the show, Kat. And as we talked about during the pre-show chat, I heard about you way back, probably maybe three or four years ago. You were a guest on one of my favorite podcasts at the time, which is called Entrepreneur on Fire, hosted by uh, John Lee Dumas. And it was the first I heard about Defy Ventures and this amazing thing you were doing, going into prisons and teaching prisoners how to become entrepreneurs, teaching them about business. And I was just blown away by that. And uh, since then, I've, I've read your book, of course, and I was interested in sort of the story on how you first became interested in this. It sort of seemed like it came out of 
left field. A friend asked you to go visit a prison. So I think a good place to start is really some background on, on that story. How did you, what was that visit? How did you get interested in going on the visit in the first place? Yeah, it did, it did come kind of out of left field. I never in a million years thought I would end up giving my life to prison work or prison advocacy because when I was 12 years old, a good friend of mine was brutally murdered. And so I was totally, I prided myself on being tough on crime, lock them up and throw away the key. And I, I went to UC Berkeley for undergrad, started working in venture capital and then in private equity. And when I was 26 years old, a good friend of mine who worked for JP Morgan told me that she was going to Texas. So we were living in New York City at the time, and she was flying all the way out to Texas to go to prison. And uh, I thought she sounded a little crazy. And she invited me to come. And my first thought was, no, thanks. I have many other things to do. And I've never been in Texas and not sure that I care to go. She ended up persuading me and turning my no into a yes. So what, what was her what was her reason for going? Is this something she'd done before? Or? She was going with a, an evangel- evangelical prison ministry called Prison Fellowship. And uh, she was a donor to them. And she, she was a business person as well. And she told me, like, haven't you ever had second chances? And I said, yes. And aren't you grateful for the second chances that you've had? And I had been praying to find my calling or my purpose in earth on earth. I could see that even at a young age at 26, I was good at roping and deal flow. And I could see that, that people at my firm who were more experienced than I was, I could see that I was on a tra- trajectory to make a lot of money. Um, but I was really looking for more in life than just making a buck. I was wondering like, what is the purpose of all this? Like, is it to die with a big fat pile of money? And I wanted to see how I could use my, my business skills and my heart to also make a, le- a difference in the lives of others. I just never thought it would be in the world of prisons where I had never been. And I had written everyone off as being like a wild caged animal. But then the way that she challenged me on second chances of which I've received plenty in my life. And I am big on grace and mercy and fighting injustice. And um, when she challenged me, I could feel my heart buzzing. And because I'd been wanting to find my calling or in my book, I refer to it as my generous hustle, Mm -hmm. like a way to make a positive contribution to the world. And one of the things that I write about in my book is if you want to find your calling or a way to make a meaningful difference and you just keep doing the things that you've been doing, you obviously haven't found it yet. So you need to start saying yes to things. So as she talked about it and I could, I could feel like this tension within myself, I was like, you know what, I'm just going to, I'm going to say yes and I'm going to take a risk and a chance and I'm going to inconvenience myself. And I flew out there. And to this day, I think, what if I had kept my no a no? I mean, my, I would be missing out on the greatest gifts and opportunities of my life to serve and to, and to live a meaningful life. It's amazing when you look back on your life, just one little, one little decision, uh, the impact that, that it can have. It's, it's really, really incredible. And the, the lives you've impacted since then. And my next question, so you go on this visit and um, I'm sure you didn't know what to expect first time being in prison. Um, I, I have never visited a prison, so I, I wouldn't know what to expect. when you We, we could change that, John. Yeah, I would like to change that sometime soon. Okay. <laughs> um, 
Watch what you say with me. <laughs> so was was there a defining moment? Was there something that really stuck out and where it really hit you and you thought, you know, I, I, I need to make a change here. I need to, you know, at least come back and visit again at, at the very least. Yeah, there were a couple of things from that first visit, which was in 2004, so about 14 years ago. Uh, first was that, when I went to prison, I was not even expecting to meet human beings. And I'm ashamed to say that at this point, because now I absolutely see their humanity. And that's what I spend my life fighting for. But when I went, I went more out of curiosity. And so the first thing that struck me was that they were human beings, just like I was, who had made bad decisions in their lives. Granted, their bad decisions were criminal. I had not really made many cr criminal or not serious criminal uh, decisions at that at that point. One of the first people that I met in prison, his name is Johnny Taylor. And when Johnny was only eight years old, he watched as his grandfather murdered his father in front of him. And as he told me his story, then by the age of 18, he found himself in prison. He had started selling or using drugs around 13 or as a, as a young, maybe 11, 12. But what I realized is that so many of their backstories are similar. They've experienced pain in the, or a trauma in their early childhood. And they often didn't have the resources to go to therapy, or maybe they came from dysfunctional families. Many of them knew, never knew their fathers or wished they had not known their fathers. And many of their fathers are often a gang or selling drugs or in prison. And many of these young men, and I've, I've worked with women and youth in prison as well, but 95% of the prison system is male, so that's when I say young men. Um, many of them think that going to prison is like a rite of passage. So as I heard Johnny's story and then also saw his charisma and his skill that he had to offer the world, quite a few light bulbs went on for me. One was I was so convicted over the ugliness of my own heart, the way that I could write off. I mean, there are more than 2 million Americans who are in prison right now. And the way that I could entirely write people off as being less than and thinking that I was better than, I, uh, I felt the need after that to open other people's eyes to the humanity that I had experienced and seen. And then in speaking with a lot of these people for the, this is my first time having interactions with people who had lived in this lifestyle. And I realized for the first time that not all, but many successful drug dealers and gang leaders share a whole lot in common with successful entrepreneurs and investors. And that many, um, many gangs and drag rings are run by boards of directors and they have bylaws and they have accountants and they have for-profit businesses and they have margins that are better than most businesses that, that I've ever seen, even when I used to work in the investment field. Um, and they are, they're charismatic salespeople. They're looking for a purpose. And I say that they all messed up on their risk management strategies because they all got busted and went to prison, you know, but that's when I realized that many of these people, not everyone in prison, but many of them, are born into circumstances of poverty and hardship, and they become scrappy and resourceful and independent. They're kind of forced to become these scrappy hustlers at a very young age. And so that 
in itself makes them more entrepreneurial. Now, their their hustling skills have not been for a generous hustle. They have been taking from society, doing illegal things, and they would readily admit to that and take ownership of the destruction that many of their uh, old ways caused. And the people that I met on that first visit and continue to meet to this day, they're just looking for an opportunity to redeem themselves and to use their skills to make a positive difference in society. They're, I'm, I've met almost no one who doesn't want redemption, doesn't want a second chance. They're, they're begging for it. They're hungry for programs. And unfortunately, in so many prisons, um, they're, they're a very underserved population, and they don't even have an opportunity to take programs. So these are people who are looking for direction. They want it. They're ready. And it's one of the reasons I love working there is because they soak it up like a sponge, and they're so grateful, yet we don't invest in them. And we say in society that this is the field of corrections, yet there's very little that's corrective about prison. It's really just punishment. And something that people don't realize a lot of times, they think lock them up and throw away the key, but 95% of people who are in prison get released. So who do you want as your neighbor? Because a lot of people say, I'd rather spend my money on education or kids. Well, great. Those sectors need money as well. But so many people are spending resources there. And these people who go to prison actually become better criminals in prison. That's what they're taught. That's what they learn how to be around each other. They don't have hope and, or many of them don't have much hope and, um, and they're coming home. And so we as citizens have a choice, either do something about it, especially when they're so willing or do nothing and see who comes home. And then when I also realized, even on that first trip, the cost of incarcerating people, like in California, it costs taxpayers $75,000 to incarcerate one person for one year. And the people that I serve have averaged nearly 20 years in prison. So do the math on that, right? They're, they're all coming home. What goes into that cost? At a high, you don't have to get specific, but like at a high level, I mean, how can it possibly cost that much? Well, uh, the cost of labor is very high. And at some facilities, don't quote me on this number, but at, at many facilities, there are three or 4,000 incarcerated people, and there might be up to 1,000 staff members. So especially higher security facilities. So paying for the staff for correctional officers is very expensive. Um, I can tell you that feeding them isn't like, I think the cost of food for one incarcerated person per day is like around $2 a day for three hot meals or two hot meals and one other meal. So I think it's mainly the cost of labor, but you also have to pay for health and dental basic, I mean, ba- basic services. I think, I think the biggest cost, though, outside of like security and uh, they, they really don't get air conditioning. I mean, it's pretty minimal as a labor cost. Right. Yeah. Well, that, that makes sense. You know, I, I think it's, it's interesting how our stories are sort of similar in that I didn't go to a prison to uh, to meet people who've been affected by the criminal justice system, but I went to work in an area. I used to work out in uh, the Inland Empire out in California in a very industrial environment, um, working on the shop floor as a supervisor. And a lot of the people I worked with had a, a criminal background. And I never met anyone up until that point, really, who was a felon, who'd been to prison. And that was just an eye-opener for me. Um I mean, it's it's kind of, I feel ashamed to say it now, looking back, but 
I, I looked I looked at them differently, you know, and they were I quickly came to realize they were just like me. They had families, they had uh, you know values, and, and they wanted to uh, they had goals, aspirations, visions, and dreams. So um, that was sort of the catalyst that sort of pushed me on my way and made me really start to question um, the, the way that I thought. But um, it's I wish that yeah the the an entire population happens all the time where we say like they're different from me. And I don't know if you heard me or picked up on this when I said earlier that the criminal decisions that I had made had not been significant ones. What I mean by that is in an exercise that I run in prison regularly called Step to the Line, I ask volunteers, I say step to the line and the, the, the incarcerated people volunteers are on the other side of the line. Step to the line if you were ever in a childhood fight. And that includes pulling your sibling's hair, punching a boy at the park. And about 70% of our volunteers will step to the line on that. And I say, I don't know if you realize this, but all those of you who are at the line right now have committed violent crime. You haven't been convicted of violent crime. But we as citizens and politicians in particular will write off people who committed violent crime as being irredeemable. And sometimes when I say things like that, people will roll their eyes at me and they're like, come on, these guys did really bad things. And I'm like, you know, two weeks ago, I was in prison with a guy who was first arrested at the age of seven for stealing pencils. There was a guy who was arrested at the age of six. He was arrested for breaking into his own family's home when his mother was high and passed out and he got locked out of the house. And then he got put in the handcuffs at the age of six. And I used so, to break into my childhood home all the time. And we had, I mean, it was almost like a, we did it on purpose. We'd lock the door, come home from school and we had a screen door. We could jimmy the lock to get in. Yeah. And entering. Yeah. yeah. So that's why I say like, I mean, we're all criminals. Like if you've ever gotten in a car after drinking one too many drinks, you've done something criminal. You just haven't been caught yet. It's so easy. And I would say even natural for humans to judge other human beings as being worse than them, to write them off. Yeah, it, it, it certainly is. And I think what leads to it is a lot of people just don't go through the thought process. They've never, just like your step to the line, they've never seen anything like that. And I, I want to sort of ask you a little bit about, because I, I know you, you, I think you use it both with your EITs, your entrepreneurs and training, obviously, and with volunteers. I know do, um, with Defy Ventures, um, did executives get involved in that too, who were observing Absolutely. it? Absolutely. Yeah. Yes. So in the past 14 years of doing this work, and now with my third venture that I've started as well, I've recruited a total of more through the programs I've started, more than 7,000 volunteers. And, and most of them are CEOs and entrepreneurs and investors and business professionals who have come to prison and they serve as mentors and coaches and judges. We run Shark Tank style pitch competitions so that the incarcerated men, women, and youth are getting feedback on their ideas and on their resumes. And we don't just make it a professional skills building experience. One of the core things that we have done throughout these programs that I've started is to create empathy and leveling the playing field to realize that we're all we're all humans and we actually have a whole lot more in common than we think that we do because it's easy for the volunteers who come in to be afraid of the incarcerated people and think that they're that they're going to be so different but 
usually the day before the volunteers come in, I go into the prison to give the guys a pep talk because they are terrified of the volunteers because <laughs> they think the volunteers are so different than them. And if we don't do things to break down barriers and to build empathy, it can look like a junior high dance with the two parties standing on the other side. So we are intentional about creating bonding activities that show us what we do have in common. However, there are a lot of differences typically between most of our volunteers who for the most part have not served time and who for the most part were born into privilege and access and opportunities. And then the people that we serve in prison who are not born into that kind of privilege and the people that we serve typically have gone through very significant experiences. Most of them saw somebody get murdered before the age of 10. Um, most of them were abused um, physically and sexually. Um, most of them have had an immediate family member die before the age of 18. Most of them have had a parent who was incarcerated. So these are differences that we have, but we teach people to respect one another for their differences. And one of the things that I absolutely hate that does not help at all is pity. So when volunteers see the hardships that our guys have overcome, I tell them, don't feel sorry for them. Look at them and have even more respect for them because look, they're becoming entrepreneurs, they're striving, they're giving their all, even though they could have given up hope long ago. And I think when our volunteers see that, they're like, wow, that's grit. I mean, that's really inspiring to see someone who's been incarcerated for 20 years, maybe has not had a single family member come to visit them and is still working his or her butt off every day to become a better version of themselves. I mean, the way that our men and women work to improve themselves gives hope to the volunteers to go and try harder in their lives too. When you talk about step to the line, this exercise, is this something that, that you created? I did. I did, but I kind of ripped it off from that movie Freedom Riders. I'm not familiar with it. <laughs> so it's a movie about like a, a teacher who goes into like an inner city school and then has them step to the line on things that they have in common and that they okay. don't. Um, and I just took that to a next level. So I, I started doing that at prison entrepreneurship program in Texas. And then I did it at Defy Ventures and now I'm doing it with my third okay. venture as well. And we ask a whole series of questions that bring people to appreciate one another. Yeah, what are some examples of, of some of some of the other questions? So well we start off we start off really easy with some fun questions like I like hip hop music or I like country just to see, you know, what we have in common or what we don't. And then we go a little deeper. Like um I feel a little nervous about this exercise right now because I don't know what's going to be asked and I already made a commitment to be honest. Um I ask questions like, um, I, I have found myself judging someone before I even met them. Everyone's at the line on that. Um, then I ask, like, I'm judging other people right now at, during this exercise. Maybe half the people are at the line. Then um, I judge myself on a regular basis. Everyone's at the line. And I say, you know, rhetorically here, what would happen if you judged yourself a little less often and a little less harshly, who might you be? And then we progressively go deeper. So we have questions like I was raised in poverty or I, I witnessed a murder of a family member. Um, how much time they've been incarcerated, how much time they've done in shoe. Shoe is 
solitary confinement. So how much time you've gone without any physical contact, basically being locked in your bathroom, the equivalent of. Um, some people's bathrooms are a lot bigger than the shoe. <laughs> um, and then we have questions like, I feel ashamed of my past, or um, there are some things that I have not forgiven myself for, or there are some things that I have not forgiven other people for. And hurting myself, or sorry, not forgiving myself or someone else is hurting me to this day. I love entrepreneurship, but one of the most important messages that I live my life to share is a message of forgiveness. And I talk to our volunteers and to our incarcerated people about how the prison system can only incarcerate your physical self. We are the only ones who can incarcerate our minds and our hearts. And when we choose not to forgive ourselves or somebody else, we're living in the past. We're shackling ourselves to our past. And I bet any one of your listeners who is paying attention on this podcast, the only reason that you listen to a podcast is because you want to glean something that could make you better. You believe you might be able to have a better future. If you want to have a better future and you're choosing not to forgive, think about it. I, I encourage people and I teach all the time and I teach this as a step to the line. I say forgiveness is a choice. It's not a feeling. It doesn't need to be a feeling because if we wait till we feel like it will, it's not something that we need to earn. It's a decision and it's so simple yet so hard. And it sounds like this, I forgive me or I forgive him. And then getting really stubborn about that and producing a community of forgiveness. And that's what we do at these events. We reconcile our past so that we can build beautiful futures of purpose together. The cannabis industry has rapidly expanded. For those liberty lovers who want to take advantage of this growing industry, they've been met with a flood of government taxes and regulation. A lot of cannabis companies would just love to hire a full-time CFO, but that could be super, super expensive. But what if you could have the knowledge and experience of this full-time CFO at a fraction of the cost? If you're in the cannabis business or you plan on entering the fray, then you need to schedule a free consultation with the Grow CFO, Rachel Kennerly. The Grow CFO will help to maximize cost of goods sold deductions by employing accrual and cost accounting, creating tax savings and improving cash flow. They will keep your books in an audit-ready state. If you or someone you know is either already in the cannabis industry or thinking about jumping in the fray, go to thegrowcfo.com and schedule a free consultation today. So I'm going to jump around a little bit, but you bring up forgiveness. And from your book, the one story that comes to mind immediately is there was an EIT graduation with Defy that, uh, that, that you were putting on. And there was there was pizza. There was pizza being passed out, and there was a bit of a uh, a scandal that happened where the prisoners, I guess, were not permitted to eat the pizza, but some of them had snuck a couple slices, or maybe maybe more than that, maybe five five or ten of the of the prisoners had, and this became a point where you did not allow the um, proceedings to go on until you got past that, and it was. It, it, it was amazing to hear you tell the story and really how you were able to pull that, uh, well, first that honesty out of people by convincing them that they were going to be forgiven. Um, it was, I thought, thought that was such, a, such an interest, interesting story. And um, it, sound, it sounded like from the book that a lot of the executives, like that was the most powerful lesson that, that they learned, which I thought was pretty cool. 
Yeah, well, thank you for reading the book and the story that you're referring to, I call Pizzagate. And yeah, it was one of these examples where for some reason, allow the guys to eat the pizza and the volunteers to eat the pizza. And I was not okay with that. But I didn't have a choice that day. When I'm in prison, I do, I do work under their, their authority. And um, when I found out that these guys had snuck some pizza, uh, yeah, I'm, I'm big on accountability and, and honesty. And, and one thing that I've learned about forgiveness and shame, which is another big thing that, that we work on in these programs, is after we screw up, the most natural thing to do after a screw up is to lie about it because our heads will frequently tell us like, if I am honest about what I did, then people will not accept me. I will not be okay. And I'll be thrown out. And here we go again. And all that negative head trash. And so at first I asked the guys just to confess and yeah, I held the event hostage. I wouldn't let it go on. Um, But when I realized that they didn't want to come for it, come forth, I did realize safe environment for them to repent. And so I told them they wouldn't get kicked out. And after some of the men did come forward to confess their pizza smuggling, we, we even like celebrated that. We didn't celebrate that they stole pizza, but we celebrated their courage in coming forth to confess that because it takes a lot of courage to be honest. And, um, some of the people that I work with have been in patterns for a long time of cutting corners or taking things and they've been punished for it. And so they're regularly motivated to lie or to hide for it because they've seen that they've been smacked every single time that they mess up. And I by no means encourage the mess up. And there is still, there is still a consequence for them. Um, but their, their bravery and their example with their confession was inspiring to everyone, to all the volunteers, because it did take so much courage. And it takes courage to confess. And in my book, I have a chapter on confession and then a separate chapter on making a meaningful apology, because they're two different things in the separate chapter on forgiveness. But then the courage that all of the, uh, the volunteers and even the prison staff had to offer forgiveness to these men. It was a, it was a beautiful and very difficult experience to lead. Yeah, I can, I can only imagine. And it's, it's, it's amazing that all of that could just come from, from pizza. But <laughs> it, it was certainly not planned. I can tell you that. <laughs> um, so if, if you could, so talk about sort of, because I know, so you've had the three, well, now you've had a PEP to five ventures and now your new venture. And we get into, into your new venture in a bit, but you sort of, uh, in between these ventures, where you, you were forced to leave your first venture, right? Or forced, maybe not forced, but chose to resign from, from your yeah. first venture, uh, PEP. Can you talk a little, little bit about sort of, I know there was a very difficult time in your life, um, and uh, you go into detail in that in the book. I'm not going to ask you to go through everything. I'm sure you could talk for for a long time about that. But could you could you give some background on the transition between PEP and and into Defy and uh, 
some takeaways from that? Sure. Um, I, I am very passionate about the work I do, but it has been filled with gut-wrenching challenges. And I've made some really big mistakes along the way, and I take ownership of them, and I'm willing to share them. So um, I started PEP in Texas when I was 26 years old. And I uh, had been married at the age of 22. And one thing I said that I would never be was a divorced woman. And I was living in a very Christian community where people would say things like, God hates divorce and divorce is sin. And um, at the age of 31, I found my first and it came unexpectedly for me. And instead of reaching out to people that I, who cared for me, who could have been there for me, I, I felt a shame and I hid in my shame. And I seriously struggled as I went through this divorce and the people that I felt comfortable confiding in were people who understood failure and shame and they were people who had been released from prison and they were graduates of the program that I had started and they were out and um, as I went through this hard time I was in the hospital with back-to-back pneumonias and I just I felt very alone anyway um, these guys helped to move me out of my house and and take care of me in a time when I was at my weakness I crossed boundaries I made decisions that I regret to this day, and I had some relationships with men who had been released from the Texas prison system. And what I did was not illegal, but I knew better. I knew that if the Texas prison system heard about it, that they would not be okay with my choices. Um, and I knew I was making self-sabotaging decisions, and I was at that such a low point in my life that it didn't stop me, and I hate that. So after my poor choices, sure enough, the Texas prison system found out. They asked me. I was honest. My honesty cost me everything, or what I thought at the time was everything. Um, Before uh, the news went out, we had 7,500 supporters at the time, and I sent a full disclosure letter saying, you know, I was divorced and I had these relationships. Many people didn't even know I was divorced. I didn't exactly send a press release about that. And um, right after I sent that, uh, that letter to all of our supporters, it also went out across national news, the news of me, a young woman who had been known for prison reform. And at the time we had a recidivism rate that was less than 5%. And I was like a poster child for prison reform and had only had positive things written. And now I was known for my poor choices. And one of the things I frequently ask to audiences is what would it be like if you were only known for the worst thing you've done? Well, that became story. And um, after it went out, I thought no one would ever believe in me or care about me again. And about a thousand people wrote me back nearly instantly and they said, we love you. We believe in you. Um, what are you doing next? You've always, always preached grace and second chances. I had spoken at a lot of churches and um, I was so ashamed and so disgusted with myself that I wanted to take my life. I thought I had no future. And um, 
it was, I leaned hard on a small group of mentors and advisors who loved me back to life. And that was about 10 years ago. And I went through so much therapy to look inside at why I had self-sabotaged in my difficult time. And it was a really depressing year of my life. And um, I moved back to New York City. And I got an offer to go back into finance because that's how I'd started my career. And um, I felt so like depressed and low that I didn't think I could have the energy to ever do this work ever again. But even in the midst of my depression, in my darkest days, the moments that kept me alive were thinking back to the graduation ceremonies that we had at these events where I would see these graduates of the program in their caps and gowns, many for the first time in their lives, reuniting with their children and building a new legacy for their children. And I have a passion for great fatherhood. And that passion is what caused me not to give up. That combined with other people not giving up on me, even though I didn't believe in myself and was at such a low point. And so I turned down that offer to go back into finance and I was nervous as hell and as insecure as could be. But I announced, I announced my plans for what I call my 2.0. It was Defy Ventures. And I founded Defy Ventures about eight years ago now. And I found it out of New York City. And at first, it was just a small pilot program in New York serving released men and women because I thought no warden would ever let me back in prison with my you know, so-called rap sheet. I'm really glad that I was wrong. And over eight years under my leadership, Defy scaled out to about 30 prisons in five different states and served thousands of men and women and youth and has achieved a recidivism rate that has been validated and confirmed, a three-year recidivism rate of less than 5% still, and has incubated more than 100 companies started by released graduates that have gone on to create so many employment opportunities for other people. Because when you get out of prison, sometimes people don't want to hire you, but you can use your natural entrepreneurial skills to start your own business, a small legal business, and then many of these businesses hire other people. And so that the Defy story is a beautiful one. And I'm really proud of the work that we had the opportunity to build with thousands of volunteers across the country and so many hundreds of companies that care deeply about social justice. So to, to dig into Defy a little bit, um, what what is the the curriculum like? I mean, is it something where the prisoners are taking where they would take this this a track all the way through and then graduate and be ready to start a business, or maybe some of them just do sort of an it you know an intro or I mean, it's what's uh sure give, give me a feel for how that works. So inside prison, the program is called CEO of Your New Life, and. And when they graduated, they would get a Baylor University MBA program certificate. This program is no cakewalk. Like they have to work their butts off. And the average graduate only has a formal education of eighth grade. Um, They're not formally educated people, but they are smart and they are so motivated, dedicated and willing to learn. 
And so they are going through a rigorous training curriculum. And out of the 100 courses, only about 20 or 30 of them are entrepreneurship related to get them through ideation, like Seth Godin teaches the ideation courses. And we have top venture capitalists and CEOs and entrepreneurs and formerly incarcerated role models teaching how to overcome barriers. And so they certainly learn the ins and outs of a business. And then they're actually taught by Stanford and Harvard Business School professors. Like we went and videotaped them and I brought released men and women to the Harvard and Stanford campuses, videotaped the professors, and then these videos play in prison. So incarcerated people are being taught by the nation's best MBA professors. Um, but the other roughly 70% of the curriculum is holistic. And there are courses in parenting and in forgiveness and shame reduction. And I think eight courses in Emily Post etiquette training. And a lot of courses in career readiness and career development because they need to learn how to write a resume and how to shake a hand and how to answer tough questions at the interview. And their basic courses in technology because after you've been locked up for so many years, you've never seen the internet before. So it can feel like a foreign language. Um, so the courses are a lot in personal development, a lot of character development courses. Um, there are courses in the five love languages so that they can learn to bond with their, their families and their children and, and reconnect um, to bring out their humanity, courses in emotional intelligence. And then when they graduate, in that cap and gown, it's typically one of the proudest moments of many of their lives. Yeah, that's right. I had no idea it was that, uh, you know, the, the education was that varied. That's really cool. Yeah. And then, and then when they get out, there's a post-release program that operates in, in different states. And anyone listening to this can volunteer with Defy in prison or in the out-of-prison program as well. And how would they, how would they volunteer? You can go to defyventures.org and you'll learn more about opportunities there. And that Defy operates in California, Colorado, Nebraska, and New York, um, and Connecticut. That's a fifth state. So how are you able to bring in – I mean, you have Seth Godin teaching a course. You have professors from Stanford and these, you know, these prestigious colleges. How hard was it to pull that all together to 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 bring those people to the table? Well, I'm I'm pretty aggressive. I was a high school wrestler, the only girl on the boys' team, and I was trained also by Cutco sales selling knives. You know, not quite door to door, but pretty much. And so I am good at asking people for things, and so I. Um, at first, it was really hard, but then as I started to get more and more of a network of some of the top thought leaders and influencers in the country to have our backs, and of course, the word spreads, and we had amazing media, and when you get to know one person, they can they, they usually, after that, they trusted me, and then they introduced me to more of their network, and that's how we grew to have an extremely influential network that opened up doors, not only for faculty in prison, but also as mentors and coaches and then employers outside of prison. That's really amazing. And, and what about, so how hard was it to move this program 
you know, into prisons? Like, I, I guess, was it as simple as getting a foothold somewhere? Because I know prisons are big about having their evidence, got to be evidence-based from, I've heard from other entrepreneurs trying to get their programs in, prison consultants and whatnot. Yeah. Uh, how hard is that to do? Well, when I, when I started in our first prison, so when I launched Defy eight years ago, we started on the outside and then we started in the California prison system, which is very progressive and understands that rehabilitation is a key part of the mission. Some, there are some other prison systems that don't really value rehabilitation. They only do the punishment and security piece. And California was so open. And when they had seen what I had developed at PEP, and then they also saw the results of what we had developed for the post-release program in New York, they were hungry for program and welcoming of it. They saw the results. They saw the amazing people involved with us. And I was surprised, pleasantly surprised to see that I was being more critical of my own past than they were. I was willing to have very honest conversations with any warden who asks me about the mistakes that I made and how I've learned my lessons. And so I welcome that. So you can ask me anything. And I think people have appreciated my honesty, candor, and upfrontness. So it was, maybe it's because I've, you know, had quite a track record of working in prisons now. Um, and I, I know how to work with correctional staff and I have great respect and appreciation for them. But I found them to be very welcoming. That is not across the board. We did try to open up in some other states that I won't mention by name. That uh, I don't think it was about me or my story. I think it was more of a mentality issue where they just, they don't want incarcerated people to be happy and fulfilled and getting ahead and making money because none of us should forget that the uh, prison industrial complex, it's a big business and there are entire towns that revolve around recidivism. And in this country, 76.6% of people are rearrested within five years. So that keeps a lot of people employed in prisons. And so there are some systems that don't want that business going down. Private prisons really, they need their beds to be filled. Yeah, we, we've talked about that pretty often on the show, private prisons and also how the war on drugs factors into that and feeding the Absolutely. prison complex. Yeah. Um, so can you talk a little bit about, because you're still, I think, involved, at least as a consultant in some capacity with Defy, but can you talk a little bit, little bit about your tra- transition away from it um, and the reasons for that? Sure. Um, I don't like to talk about it, but I, so I'm not a consultant with Defy. I have no formal involvement or capacity. It's my baby. I brought it into the world and I love it and I want it to succeed. And that's why I encourage people to give all their money to it and to go to prison and to be involved with Defy, which is a 501c3. Um, ever since my 2009 scandal, which I speak about very openly pretty much everywhere I go, I've had a growing target on my back. I am no stranger to dangerous threats and a lot of false allegations from people who have wanted to take me down. The work that I have started is disrupting a lot of systems and doesn't make everybody happy. Um, In January of this year, of 2018, I faced my most serious attack 
Uh, there was a person who wanted me out of power and he went on a stated campaign to eliminate Defy. He said he was going scorched earth to take Defy down. And he started inventing allegations about Defy and about me. And it was like he was throwing spaghetti against the wall to see what could stick. And the allegations ranged from everything from embezzlement to misappropriation of funds to lying about the program's stellar results to a whole range of allegations against me personally as well. And when the board of Defy heard about these allegations, they retained one of the top law firms in the country to look into it. But the allegations kept piling in. It was so easy for this person to make up allegations. And so a four-month investigation that was extremely thorough ensued. And uh, the, the problem was in the, in the process here, my attacker was able to get a tabloid-style publication to write a very salacious article about Defy and about me that was full of unfounded allegations without having evidence. And unfortunately, in this day and age, people see you know, 140 characters and a juicy article. And it's sad, one of the most sacred principles of the American justice system in our country is innocent until proven guilty. But today, it's like that doesn't happen. If someone says you did it, you did. Uh, might as well be true. And great things can get destroyed that way. And when this article came out in March that said horrifying things about me and about Defy, I resigned. And I did not resign because the things were true in the article. My attacker, this was not an attempt to bring out the truth. Um, about anything. I resigned because I wanted to spare Defy of the scandal that I had brought to it because of my past in 2009. And I wanted the organization to live on. And this was my best effort. Leaving Defy was exceptionally painful and sadly very familiar from my 2009 resignation. In 2009, I made bad decisions. Here, I did not. Um, and then the investigation came back and when, when so many allegations are made against any organization like this, of course, it showed that there's room for improvement, but there was no finding whatsoever of any type of embezzlement or lying about money or misappropriating funds or like the recidivism was proven to be less than 5%. Basically defies great work was vindicated. And then when it came to me personally, there were allegations against me. I'm, I'm embarrassed to even talk about them, but I will since this stuff is public now. There were allegations against me that I was having sex with my board members and with volunteers and with currently incarcerated people and with formerly incarcerated people and with my staff members and basically anything that walked. And even with allegations, I was having sex with wardens because apparently this the only way that I could achieve such results is by doing that, which is disgusting. Um, I, there was an allegation that Defy was a cover for a prostitution ring. That's how far and how ridiculous all of this went. And to disprove that stuff is kind of difficult. So 
on the allegations against me, everything was disproven except for one thing that wasn't proven to be true, but it wasn't proven to be untrue. And it wasn't true. Um, but I was, I mean, my reputation sucks. And um, a lot of people believe crappy media. They take it at face value. And um, the organization was severely injured and has gone through a reorganization. I'm thankful that my attacker didn't get his wish and that Defy's good work is continuing because in the wake of this, amazing donors who support Defy saw the value and they wanted to make sure that the entrepreneurs in training, as we call them, could get to the finish line of their graduation. So Defy is continuing in all five states right now. But for the staff that remains at Defy, this is an incredibly difficult challenge to manage in this crisis. And um, for me, the past six months of my life have been devastating. They've been the darkest time of my life. This has been a lot harder for me than even my resignation from PEP in Texas. Being accused of um, these things is very difficult for me. Um, and what is getting me through this time right now, There, I mean, there are a couple things. I, first of all, right now would be a really good time for me to walk away from this sector. But um, thankfully, the wardens that I work with, they are no stranger to false allegations as well. They get accused of things all the time, and they could see right through what happened here. They know my character. They know the results that they see in prison. Correctional officials regularly say they've been doing this work for 30 years and have never seen anything like this work. So they're giving me another chance. Not only are they giving me another chance, I'm getting hit up more and more by correctional officials who are like, hey, we hear that you're available now. So the week after my resignation, I went back to Pelican Bay State Prison, which is, for me, my favorite place to spend time because I see more miracles there than just about anywhere. And the guys heard all the news and more. And they said to me, um, they said, Kat, we believe in you. We believe you. And these guys in prison don't really trust many people. And the way that they trust me is a great privilege. I feel like that's a sacred trust. And it's also a really big responsibility. And one of them said to me, he stood up in front of everyone. He said, Kat, I was crying and everything. And he said, you need to find your happiness and get it together because all of our happiness depends on you getting your happiness back. And I was like, oh my goodness, I don't know how I'm going to do this. Um, it feels like an overwhelming responsibility and at times a burden, but it's also a joy. And it's my life privilege to have the opportunity to serve them. And, to be, to be trusted by people. And um, I, I could give up right now, but I, I, I drink out of this mug every morning that says, just when the caterpillar thought the world was over, it became a butterfly. And I don't feel like I've quite become a butterfly yet, but I'm in process. And then I have another quote that is in front of me all the time that says, I will do nothing because of public opinion but everything because of conscience. And if I allowed what social media or what the world says about me right now to dictate my future, I might just shoot myself in the head because it's pretty bad.
but I know my conscience and people who know my character continue to believe in me. And I know that I'm uniquely gifted from a skill standpoint and I have the heart to continue doing this work. And so I, um, amazing people are in my corner right now. Still, I mean, you're giving me this opportunity to be on this podcast and I'm really grateful for that. You don't need to do that. So um, I'm still in stealth mode right now on venture number three. I'm dying to tell you the name. It's not mine. The guys at Pelican Bay actually named it and the name will be released within probably the next month. And um, this program is really different. It's being created by people inside prison. So some of the top gang leaders, they still have my back. Um, they're writing curriculum and I'm, I'm guiding them in, in what to write. And the, the prison systems are still working with me and supportive of this, because if you want to get the buy-in of incarcerated people, one of the best way a prison system and almost all crime is run by gangs. So if you can get the top gang leaders who have been graduates of programs that I've started, if you can get them to author the curriculum and it's written for us, by us, it just has that much more credibility. So I'm creating a, a correspondence program now with volunteer events that are optional in uh, in two weeks, I'm bringing in 40 volunteers to two prisons. So you can come as well. And um, if anyone who's listening can email me at, at volunteer at cathoke.com if you want to come and check it out. And um, I'd be glad you. But the correspondence program, my vision is to develop the most comprehensive and effective prison curriculum that has ever been seen by the correctional industry. And that is a very ambitious vision. Um, but I believe that these guys can write it and I'm going to pay them to write it. And um, I'm excited to develop it. And the reason that I'm doing this is because every day I think about incarcerated people. And I write about this in my book. There's a story in there. Where I write about how I, I went into a, a new prison a few years ago and a guy like beelines to me and he's like, Kat, you're here. You made it. You got all my letters. I've been writing you for the past six years. And no, I had not gotten his letters, but he said to me, he's like, now I, you know, God does answer prayers. I believe in miracles. I've been locked up for 20 years. And all I've been asking for is an opportunity to transform. I've just wanted a program. I haven't been able to get into any programs. Thank you so much for coming to prison. Thank you for answering my letters. And I get stacks of jail mail still to this day from people who want nothing more than a second chance or a third chance. And I have realized that in my life trying to make a defense case for myself, but my story and even the recent attack that I went through pales in comparison to what many of the people that I've went through, they have made really bad decisions and they have made big mistakes and they are paying their debt to society. But many of them were incarcerated at the age of 15 and they have opportunity and potential. And when I think about what kind of neighbor I want in our country, I want someone who's now equipped, who believes that he or she can make a difference, who's ready to get a job and pay taxes when they get out, start a company 
and be the fathers and the mothers that our communities need. And so I think about these people I've never met before, and I have a big fire under my butt that makes me, even when I don't feel like it, even when I don't know how I'm going to have the energy to put one foot in front of the other, even right now when I don't believe in myself like I used to, I'm doing it again. And I know that my life would be a lot easier if I got a real job. But um, I, I said I'll never turn my back on them. I won't. Yeah, it's, you know, it's, it's just an incredible timeline that, that you've, had, you've had in your life. Um, how much you've accomplished, how much you've risked yourself, I guess, sacrificed yourself uh, to really, for your generous hustle, uh, to, to use your term, because I think that's, that's a fantastic term. And that's, that's how I look at, really, this show. This is, this is my generous hustle. This isn't my full-time job, at least not yet. But uh, you know, I'm kind of doing it <clears throat> in a different way, trying to raise awareness um, that you know, people behind bars really need our help. You're doing it actively, reaching into the system and uh, meeting these people there, which I, I just think is so so fantastic. And um, I, I just I'm, I'm really happy you're continue. You've decided to continue to do it. So if you could Thank just, you. Uh, I guess, one last thing, if you could let our audience know. I know we talked about your book a little bit, but again, let them know where they can get it. Um, why they should read it, and uh, anything else that you want to plug. I'm very proud to pump the book. So again, it's called A Second Chance for you and for me and for the rest of us, and you can buy it on Amazon. And every dollar from the book will go to fund this new program, this new stealth mode program in prison that I'm piloting. I currently have 164 men that I'm serving at two prisons. And so if you buy the book, you'll be making a difference in their lives. But more than that, it's called a second chance for you, for me, and for the rest of us, because it doesn't only talk about incarceration. And I share so many stories, remarkable stories of triumph of the people that I've had the pleasure of serving in the past. But it also talk about your own second chance and not if you make a mistake, but when you make a mistake, because we all do, it will help you to get to the other side of that mistake. And many people find themselves needing to reinvent themselves at some point in their lives, whether you get fired from a job, maybe you're bored to tears at your job. Maybe you find yourself being divorced. Maybe someone important in your life dies and you're looking for more, or maybe it's not even about you. Maybe your brother is currently a drug addict help or someone in your life that you love has made a bad decision and needs a second chance. I, th- I believe that this book will encourage you and not, uh, it's not just filled with inspirational stories about forgiveness and stuff. It'll actually give you some tangible tools and some steps on how to get there. So I hope it'll help you to develop your generous hustle to stop living in the past and to have more empathy for what I believe are America's most overlooked, they're America's most overlooked talent pool and some of the biggest underdogs in our country. And I, I'll tell you, read the book and then please hit me up. And again, it's volunteer at cathoke.com. And think about coming to prison or providing another way for someone to, to make a difference for them to get ahead. It will, 
make a difference in your life if you are equipping someone else with the tools that they need for their lives. Awesome. And I will link to uh, the book, obviously, on the show notes page and how to volunteer. And I am going to take you up on that offer here eventually to uh, to come to prison with you. Well, then I'm going to I'm going to set a date with you and then you can announce it to your to your listeners as well, because I'm so grateful for your generous hustle and the word that you're spreading. And also, if any of your audience, I, I do quite a bit of public speaking to companies and to faith-based audiences and to other organizations to create awareness. So I'd be honored to come and, and do that. Awesome. Well, thank you so much for being so generous with your time and, uh, and coming on the show. Thank you for giving me this great opportunity, John. All right. Hope you enjoyed that episode with Catherine Hoke. Just a phenomenal story. It's incredible what she's been through. Um, that was an, a little bit longer episode than normal, but still really, you know, after reading Catherine's book, she really didn't get to her, her entire story. Her entire story is pretty, pretty uh, incredible. Everything that she's accomplished. And uh, really in her book, she goes into the nitty gritty on how she's navigated some of these very difficult times in her life. And it's it's a powerful book. So I suggest that everyone picks it up. I'll link to it on the show notes page. And, you know, it really sucks what Catherine's going through right now, uh, essentially being uh, blackmailed into having to resign from Defy Ventures. You know, I can't even imagine what that's like. I really can't. Um, that would be like myself or Mark or Brian or, you know, being forced to resign from Lions of Liberty. And it's, it's even more so than that because her, her venture is so much more impactful. Um, I think so, at least. You know, really reaching into the prison system, helping these uh, individuals in the prison system to get a great education, to uh, you know, learn about self-actualization, to really uh, learn how to uh, learn about business, learn about entrepreneurship, learn about themselves, and learn how to motivate themselves. Just... You know, that's what we need in prisons. That's what prisons should be. You know, it's a, uh, it goes back to the old discussion. Are prisons about punishment or are they about reform? Are they about rehabilitation? You know, they should be about rehabilitation because eventually most of these people, the vast majority, are coming out of prison, as Catherine said. They're going to be your neighbors. They're going to be um, in your communities. Do you want somebody who's, uh, you know, been reformed, who's learned some skills, who's ready to contribute value, maybe start a business, be a great employee? Or do you want somebody who, when they're just in prison, they just learn about, you know, how to uh, expand their uh, illegal empire? No matter what you feel about the war on drugs, if you think drugs should be illegal or illegal, I, of course, think there should not be a war on drugs. Uh, The prohibition should be ended. But current day, it's obviously not. So, um, there are risks obviously associated with going into that trade and people end up getting arrested to go into prison and then they get deeper and deeper into that. They get involved in the violence in that in prison and then once they get out and that's just not good. That's not good. Um, we want people to come out of prison and to be valuable, to be ready to hit the ground running and Catherine's just doing a phenomenal, fantastic job with that and hopefully with her new venture. She told me a little bit about it, and uh, I'm excited. And she even told me the name, which I'm not going to share, but it's it's a cool name. And hopefully I will get to go into a prison out in California very soon, uh, maybe even December. So I will keep you guys posted on that. I'm excited about it. I just want to say, 
If you guys are enjoying these shows, you're enjoying our other three shows, please consider joining the Lions of Liberty Pride. Um, we do not make any money off of this. We do not take any money out. Um, all of the money we get through our patron program, which you can join at patreon.com slash Lions of Liberty. Every single dollar goes back into this podcast. It goes into funding us to go um, to different libertarian events, do interviews, things like that. It goes into buying us new equipment. It goes into advertising to expand our growth. Um, so, And it goes into giving you guys free giveaways, which I think we're going to have one coming up here soon for our fifth anniversary that Mark will tell you about. So we're excited about all that stuff. A lot of fun stuff on the horizon. Please consider joining the Lions of Liberty Pride. Once again, it's at patreon.com slash Lions of Liberty for as little as $5 a month. You can get in the Pride, get access to all our bonus content. We have fantastic bonus content, um, bonus episodes with uh, guests. We have a couple of recurring shows like Degenerate Gamblers, which is not really about gambling. It's more about just shooting the shit, having a good time. Um, Conspiracy Corner, which is an interesting show, a great show, very entertaining show. And uh, we have also some random stuff. Like, you know, we'll do some random AMAs. Mark and I have done them. Brian will do some some angry rants. It's fun stuff. Just for five bucks a month, you get all that. Of course, our program goes all the way up to uh, 25 and then $100 a month you can give. But uh, between the you know those price points, there's all kinds of merchandise and other free perks you get, our daily news links that are sent out, which are awesome. So... Anyway, check it out. Patreon.com slash Lions of Liberty. That's all I got. Thank you so much for listening to today's show. I really do appreciate it. This is John Odermatt signing off. Always remember to keep your head up and the fires of liberty burning. <laughs>